Okay, we're going to get started a little uh, beyond our normal starting time. All right, uh, let's stand and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our study this evening. Our Lord, we thank Thee that uh, after a busy day and um, much activity that we can come together to study thy word together to know that uh, we are led we are fed we are directed guided by thy spirit as thy spirit takes the word of God uh, in our lives and shows us uh, our need of Christ and shows us the path of truth and righteousness. We ask, Lord, uh, that Thou would attend even uh, the reading and teaching from Thy Word tonight, uh, that Thou would be exalted and glorified, that Thou would build us up in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 15 can't say that this has uh, been probably the quickest uh, study through the Gospel of John. I think we've been working at this uh, for over two years now, but we are making progress. John 15, 1 through 3. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So where are we uh, in the Gospel of John, at least most recently? In John 13, Jesus celebrated his last uh, Passover with his disciples. He left an example uh, for us that he is the one, though being the master and Lord of all, Lord himself to become a humble servant in that he washed the feet of his disciples uh, that same night. After washing the feet of his disciples during the, the meal, he identified who was going to betray him. And Judas, upon that identification, uh, arose, says the, that the, the devil entered into him, and he left the room at that time to make arrangements to betray the Lord Jesus. And then after that, the Lord instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. Then we move to John 14. John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be leaving them, um, not to abandon them, but that he was going to be going to heaven to prepare a place for them. And that... He promised that he, though he would not be here bodily, that he would send his Holy Spirit 
uh, as uh, one that would take his place so that the presence of Jesus is with us. When we have his spirit, we have the presence of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is with us. And so the Holy Spirit comes to teach us, to instruct us, to comfort us. He does all that Jesus did with his disciples. And uh, uh, that is, again, the, the blessedness of, of the Holy Spirit that is with us. And then in chapter 14, verse 31, at the very end, last uh, sentence, it says, Arise, let us go hence. So Jesus tells his disciples it's uh, time for us to leave now the, this upper room. And this becomes the, uh, having left the upper room, they are now walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, knowing full well what is about to take place, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be unjustly tried, first by the Jewish Sanhedrin and then by Pilate, and then by Herod, and then condemned uh, to uh, be crucified, and then to be led to his crucifixion, that torment, uh, to die in that way by way of hanging upon a cross, uh, basically smothering to death by way of asphyxiation. Uh, that's how those who were crucified that's uh, the way in which they died. It's a very slow, painful death. Um, and uh, not something that happened quickly, but over many, many hours um, of hanging there. So as we look at verse 1, John 15, 1, <clears throat> we don't <clears throat> know, since this didn't happen, what Jesus is saying in chapter 15 and in chapter 16 he says to his disciples so he's teaching them and yet it's not in the upper room so it's somewhere between having left the upper room and before arriving at the garden of Gethsemane so somewhere in between then the Lord either stopped uh, along the way and gave them the information we find in chapters 15 and 16, or he was talking with them as they walked um, and, and uh, him teaching them at that time. So Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. This is obviously a figure of speech. Jesus is not literally a, a vine, but he is figuratively a vine, and, and we'll see how that is the case in a moment. Just as he says he's the true bread, um, he's the door, uh, he's the shepherd. Uh, again, many, many figures of speech that the Lord Jesus uses to describe how he ministers uh, to, his, to his people. This chapter really speaks about the importance and even the necessity of union 
with Jesus Christ. Think of a vine and the branches that are in the vine. This is illustrating basically, as we'll see, that uh, just as the branches uh, will die unless they are in the vine, so we die unless we are in Jesus Christ. He is our life. We draw all grace. We draw everything we need in this life. Physically, not only spiritually, but physically, um, and spiritually, what we need through this union with Jesus Christ, being connected to him, being united to him, and enjoying communion with Christ. You could say, basically, if you were to summarize in one doctrine, all of our salvation from beginning to end, talking about divine election, even before the creation of the world, to the very end, after Christ returns, and we are uh, in the new heaven and new earth. You can describe everything, both ends, the beginning and the end, as well as everything in between, uh, in this doctrine that we're talking about tonight, union with Jesus Christ. How are we chosen from all eternity? The Ephesians 1 says, we were chosen in Christ. We were chosen to be in Jesus Christ. Uh, not that he first saw us in Christ, he saw us as sinners, but he chose us out of all of the sinners to be united to Jesus Christ. How are we redeemed, purchased? Uh, we are redeemed in Christ because when he died, we were united with him in his death. We were united with him in his resurrection. Our future, everything that we enjoy by way of all eternity, all the glory is because we are united to Jesus Christ. We are righteous in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. Everything is in Christ through our union with him. That union comes again when we trust in him. Uh, we are united to the Lord and receive all of the inheritance that Jesus himself has, has purchased it becomes ours. His inheritance as being the Son of God and being our mediator becomes our inheritance. Uh, we don't have anything less than what Jesus has. Everything becomes ours in Christ. And that's, that's the amazing thing about this doctrine and why it's so vital, so important in our understanding not only in the Bible, in the New Testament, do we find that, that expression of being united to Christ, or that doctrine of union with Christ expressed in Jesus being the vine and we being the branches. 
I think that's a, that's a great illustration. We can really see and we'll talk about that in a moment. But there are other illustrations of our union with Christ that are mentioned in the New Testament as well. These all are saying the same thing about our union with Christ. Think of this. I'll give you several other illustrations um, that illustrate our union with Jesus Christ. Okay, the first one I'll mention is he is the foundation and we are the living stones that are built upon the foundation. We are his temple. He's the foundation that is laid and we are the stones built upon it. That's also depicting our union with Christ. What it's depicting is, is that we are built upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's absolutely firm in being our foundation. It's an immovable foundation. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us because we are united to Christ as living stones upon that immovable foundation of Jesus Christ. That's, again, that illustration is in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. Next uh, illustration is that he is the husband and we are his bride. That's another illustration of our union with Jesus Christ. That's taught in Ephesians chapter 5. This is an illustration that uh, depicts our intimate union and communion of love uh, and uh, self-sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And uh, Ephesians 5 makes that very clear. He, he sacrificed his life. He gave up all uh, for his bride in order to purchase her, uh, in order to rescue and save her. Uh, and uh, we as husbands are to follow that same model uh, as uh, Christian husbands. Next uh, illustration, he's the shepherd. And we are his sheep. John chapter 10, another illustration of our union with Christ. This illustrates that, uh, uh, that this is a safe and a protective union with Christ in which he guides us. He defends us from our enemy. He feeds us in green pastures, spiritual food. He provides for us. He guides us and directs us. Another illustration of our union with Christ. The next one is uh, he's the master and we are his servants. Another illustration of our union with Christ in Luke 13. This is a union in which we, we have a Lord, we have a master, and we are to submit to him in loving obedience. Then the next illustration is that he is the elder brother and we are the younger brethren in Hebrews chapter 2. This is a union in which the elder brother, Jesus, has become one of us, taken on flesh, in our flesh, and has gone to the cross to pay for our sins completely, totally, not one sin left unpaid for through his death for his people, for his younger brethren, and that he has bestowed 
because the inheritance was left to him. The father left the inheritance to him. But he has taken that inheritance and bestowed that same inheritance upon all of us. We are the heirs of God and joint heirs. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so the vast inheritance, the immeasurable inheritance of Jesus Christ is ours because we are united to Christ through faith. The next uh, illustration is he is the king and we are his subjects in Matthew 25. And this depicts a union of loyalty and faithfulness to him who has gone forth as king and has conquered all his and all our enemies already and in history uh, is conquering them. He has already legally conquered Satan, sin. He's conquered everything already legally. Now in history he is uh, working out in history the victory that he has already won legally. And so uh, that relationship, uh, that, that illustration, further depicting our union with Christ. And then there no doubt may be others, but uh, let's focus then upon the one that's before us here, that he's the vine and we are the branches in John 15. As I said, this is a union of life and fruitfulness. The branches cannot survive, cannot bear fruit unless they are in the vine and unless they abide in the vine. So there is no life to anyone uh, who is not united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. And uh, Jesus says, in verse 1, not only that he's the vine, but he says, I am the true vine, the true vine. That, that implies that there's a contrast between a vine that's not true and a vine that is true. So what, what's the contrast with? What's the vine that is not true? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel was called the vine that God planted. For example, in Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verse 8, we read, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. So Israel is like a vine brought out of Egypt uh, when they were delivered by the Lord and God planted them in the land of promise to be a vine to bear fruit for the Lord God. Likewise, in Jeremiah 2, 21, Israel once again is likened uh, to a vine. We read, Yet I had planted thee, God is speaking to Israel, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, Holy, a right seed. 
How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? So it was a true vine, uh, but it became a degenerate, a corrupt vine by way of having turned against God, against the Lord. And then Hosea 10.1 We read, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. Not for God. He brings forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars, not uh, an altar for God, but the altars for the various gods of the surrounding nations. According to the goodness of his land, they have made these goodly images. That's how they deemed them as being goodly images, but they were perverse and corrupt unto the Lord. And then in Matthew 21, Jesus says that, uh, speaks of not just a vine, but Israel was likened to a vineyard. And because they did not bring forth fruit, uh, and he sent his prophets to gather fruit, and they, they attacked the prophets that were sent. Uh, they killed some that he said, I'll send my own son, surely they'll respect my own, my own son. And, they, and the, in the parable he sends his own son, and they say, here's the heir, they take him outside the vineyard, and they kill him. And, uh, and Jesus says to the Pharisees to whom he's speaking, what do you think that the owner of the vineyard will do to, to those men? And uh, the Pharisees say, uh, he will go forth and destroy them. And Jesus says, exactly. Um, the vineyard will be taken from you and it will be given unto a nation bringing forth the fruit of it. So it will be taken from Israel and given to Gentiles, the kingdom of God. So Israel was planted by God and was watered and cared for by the Lord, but did not yield the fruit of truth and righteousness as they were called to do, but rather... Uh, brought forth corrupt fruit, brought forth no fruit. And so the Lord told them that as a result, he was going to break down the wall around the, the vine that was protective, that he had protected them from the nations, that he was going to break down the wall so that they, they in, in the uh, figure of speech, wild animals likened unto nations, would come in and trample upon the vine. And, and that's what happened. They were led back, they were led into captivity. The vine was trampled upon by the nations, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. <clears throat> so Jesus, when he says, I am the true vine, uh, he's the true vine in all that Israel was supposed to do by way of bearing fruit, 
Jesus is the true vine that brings forth true fruit uh, through the branches that are in him. Believers who truly trust in Jesus Christ, they are the branches that will bring forth fruit. And uh, as we've noted, Jesus is the true source of all of our life and our strength. We entirely, and we, we forget this. I mean, we, we kind of get up in the morning and, and we don't remember that uh, our ability to get up and wake up is because of Christ. Uh, it's, it's not uh, just because of some natural strength that we have. It's because Christ has awakened us again. So physical life and all spiritual life uh, is given by the Lord Jesus. Everything, remember that, that God has put everything beneath the feet of the Lord Jesus. All of creation uh, has been put beneath the feet of the Lord Jesus because of his work upon the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, that he has become the heir of all things. And so uh, that uh, every blessing that we enjoy uh, is a blessing from Christ. And we, again, if we don't meditate or reflect upon that, we basically go throughout our day uh, not, giving, uh, not giving glory and thankfulness to the very one who moment by moment gives us life, breath, and health eternal life, forgiveness of sin, everything that we have, uh, a glorious eternity with him in heaven, free of sin, uh, free of pain and sorrow. In this uh, first verse, the Father, God the Father, is identified as the husbandman. That just uh, means uh, one who is a vine dresser, who is a gardener. Uh, and uh, he is the one, as we'll see, who does the pruning. The, the purging or the pruning is done by the Father. Jesus is the, bran uh, is the vine, we are the branches, the Father does the pruning and, uh, so that we will bear uh, the fruit of truth and righteousness. So let's move on to verse 2. We're not covering too many verses this evening because having to try to lay a foundation you know in understanding the use of this in this parable and using this uh, figure of speech of vines and branches or vine and branches so in verse 2 every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So here we are presented with two different kinds of branches. Branches that do not bear fruit, and branches that do bear fruit. So first, let's look at the branches that do not bear fruit. Who are these branches? Well, does say, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. The question we'll look at is, are these 
are these uh, branches truly in Christ? Or are they simply professing to be in Christ? And I believe that that all of Scripture, kind of bringing it together, the various doctrines uh, that we find in in Scripture with regard to God's salvation of grace and giving to us eternal life uh, through faith, not a temporary life, but eternal life, the perseverance of the saints, uh, that uh, those uh, who are in Christ will persevere to the end, truly in Christ. So I would take, and I believe that um, our Reformed forefathers as well uh, would take the same position, or confession of faith, take the same position. These are those who merely profess that they are in Christ. They're hypocrites, uh, basically. They make a profession, I am in Christ, I am a Christian. Uh, I am a part of the visible church of Jesus Christ. But um, in reality, um, because they bear no fruit, um, they're, they're not. They're lying. Uh, they're hypocrites. Uh, we have some, I think, very important ways to demonstrate that there are such people in the church, uh, Judas Iscariot being one. Uh, Judas was one of the 12 apostles. And yet Jesus says in John 6, uh, 64, I think I'll read that for you in verses 70 to 71. John 6, 64, concerning Judas. But there are some of you, Jesus says, that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. So from the very beginning, um, he knew Judas was not a believer, that Judas would betray him. And likewise in verses of the same chapter, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Speaking of Judas, he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Here he was a believer from the, uh, an unbeliever from the beginning, uh, and yet he was he was chosen by the Lord Jesus. I think uh, in order to fulfill prophecy, which prophesied he would be betrayed by uh, one who was a near acquaintance of of, of his. In the Psalms, it's spoken of uh, uh, in that way. Uh, but also, I think to illustrate for us this very truth, the people can verbally give profession of being in the church, uh, being uh, united to Jesus Christ by way of a verbal, as Ju Judas did. Judas was uh, no doubt given even the same kinds of gifts that the other apostles had by, by Jesus. But it shows again that it's not a mere verbal profession. He was never a believer. He was a devil. Satan was merely using him. 
and yet he was an apostle. So Judas would fit very well with what Jesus says in John 15, 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Judas would fall into that category. Likewise, if you consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, I think we find a number of branches that profess to be in Christ, in the vine, and yet Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, that's their profession, that they're in Christ, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's the fruit. How do we know? Again, uh, that's what Jesus is pointing out in John 15. Um, that it's those branches that bear fruit, not those who do not bear fruit, that are his. But in verse 22, Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Judas would qualify for all of those. But there are others. He says, many will, there will be many on that day who will say the same thing on that day of judgment. But notice what Jesus says in verse 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Not, I knew you at one time, but now I don't know you. In other words, they were never believers. They were never in the vine uh, as true branches. They professed that they were in the vine, but they were never truly in the vine. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus will say to them. <clears throat> the fact that uh, they did not bear any fruit, or fruit that lasts, uh, is indicative of the fact that they were not truly in the vine, because if they were truly in the vine, they would bear fruit. But the fact that they don't have fruit indicates that it was a mere profession that they were in the vine, not truly in the vine. You remember there's another parable uh, that Jesus told in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils and how the seed the, uh, was sown on different types of soil. And uh, there are four soils. And the first three soils, what's common to all of them is that none of them, none of the first three soils, bear fruit uh, that lasts. There may have been an initial burst, but there wasn't a fruit that lasted. The last soil, and you can read the parable for yourself in Matthew 13, but the last soil, it says, did bear fruit, but it, you know, different degrees, some 30 fold, some 60 fold, some 100 fold. In other words, 
All Christians will bear fruit for Christ. But there are degrees of fruitfulness amongst believers. Not everyone uh, is bearing a hundredfold. Um, perhaps we all could wish that we were a hundredfold, but, uh, but uh, again, God's the one who makes those judgments. Um, I'm not capable of making those judgments, whether about myself or about anybody else. Uh, that's, that's up to the Lord. But uh, nevertheless, the Lord says that there are those who have uh, varying degrees of fruitfulness. But all Christians do bear fruit for Jesus Christ. So fruitfulness is the, the great test that the Lord gives here uh, as to being a true a true uh, branch in Christ. Uh, and uh, he says in, uh, in verse 2, the second part of verse 2, And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that is, cleanseth it, prunes it, that it may bring forth even more fruit. So these, this is the second classification of of branches, those that do bear fruit. These are those who not only profess that they are Christians, but they uh, and profess that they're in Christ, but they also give evidence to the fact uh, that they are in Christ by the fruit of the Holy Spirit that they produce. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that ought to be um, something that we all reflect upon very regularly the nine and again and that's simply a representative list of uh, a fruit but I think it's a good place to begin it's just like the Ten Commandments is simply a, a summary of God's moral law so the nine fruit of the Spirit are, are a summary of the fruit that God produces in us but those fruit of love Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance or self-control. Those are the nine fruit of the Spirit that the Lord has given. Do any of us manifest completely and totally those fruit I don't think so I don't believe that uh, that we reach perfection in this life I think all of us are seeking to grow and we will continue to seek to grow until we are glorified after death um, uh, and perfected but uh, until that time we're all in the same uh, place where we are growing and seeking to manifest more and more fruit. So just as Jesus said, you'll remember back in Matthew 7, uh, how do we know true uh, teachers and false, how do we distinguish between true teachers and false teachers or true prophets and false prophets or true ministers and false ministers? How do we, do, how do we make the 
that evaluation. Uh, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. The fruit of their doctrine and the fruit uh, of their life. And so likewise, true and false branches will be known by their fruit, that Jesus says. As I said, these true branches have many weaknesses and sins. There's dead wood that Jesus has to prune from off of uh, each of us that we accumulate that needs to be purged. Uh, and the Father is ever faithful. And he doesn't prune the dead wood, though that might be if a branch could, could fill the pain, it might say, ouch, that hurts. You know, the pruning process, and we might say the same thing with regard to what the Lord is doing in our lives by way of the trials and the tribulations uh, that we go through, the afflictions, the hardships, the heartaches. But that's the Lord pruning us. That's how he does that. That's how he uh, removes dead wood from us so that we can bear more fruit. So that we can be more fruitful, not less fruitful, not to destroy us. And again, a, a little bit of you know understanding, and I'm sure most of you understand the idea, you know, in a in a tree, a fruit tree, or other types of trees that need to be pruned occasionally because they get branches that or dead wood or something like that and that they need to be cut back. Um, and uh, typically with most fruit trees that, that's necessary uh, to cut back roses and you know certain types of, uh, uh, of plants. That's not to destroy them. It's not to injure or harm them. It's to make them more fruitful. And that's what the Father, uh, our heavenly gardener, is doing with us. He's pruning us uh, through the painful, the sorrowful, you know, the hard times due to our own personal sins, due to various relationships and circumstances that we are facing. Let's understand that this is all done in love because God loves us. He wants to see us fruitful. And I know if you're like me, it's hard when we're in the midst of those trials and afflictions to appreciate the pruning process because it does hurt. It does hurt. The delays in our life, the waiting upon the Lord, all of those things are intended to prune and to teach us. All the heroes of the faith no matter who you might go to, heroes of the faith in the Old and New Testament, heroes of the faith after the completion of Scripture, those who suffered as martyrs throughout history, willing to sacrifice their lives for Jesus Christ, they were being pruned. No Christian, no Christian 
is not pruned. No one escapes being pruned. We all are being pruned. Now you may not see how I'm being pruned and I may not see how you're being pruned, but I can assure you I'm being pruned, just as you're being pruned. And so we don't, we don't have to uh, be able to know what God is doing by way of pruning in other people's lives. They probably know, but I'm, I'm just concerned that I'm learning to accept the pruning process in my own life. You see, the devil wants us to think that we're the only ones being pruned. He wants us to think that no one's been pruned as much as I've been pruned, so that we can kind of wallow in self-pity and throw a pity party. Woe is me, I'm being pruned in a way that no one else is being pruned. Well, Paul begs to differ. The Apostle Paul begs to differ with that kind of satanic temptation. It's Satan that tempts us to think that way. Because uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation. Not one that we endure, that we go through, that is unique to us. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Not unique to man. Your temptations are common to man. My temptations are common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That way of escape is not to escape pain or sorrow, but it's a, it's a, a grace that God gives to us that we may be able to bear it. He doesn't usually though he does when he wants to, take us out of that temptation, just remove it all together. And that's wonderful when he does so. But usually he takes us right through that fiery furnace, through those floods that would overflow, and drown us it would seem. He takes us through it. And he shows us, I can open the waters. I can divide and part the waters. I can cause even the fire, if I choose to, not to harm you. But I will regardless, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, O king, even if God doesn't deliver us from this fire, we're not going to bow down to your image. And so God is teaching us that what we go through is not unique to us. Jesus states here that fruitfulness within, that is the fruit of the Spirit within, and the fruit that we bear in our words and how we speak, our words, every idle word. The Lord Jesus said every idle word, that is a word that doesn't, is not profitable in some way, edifying in some way. Every idle word will be brought before God's judgment. Now that's sobering. 
That's very sobering. To give an account for every idle word. And what does that mean for the corrupt words we speak? If the idle words are going to be non-edifying words. What about the corrupt words? How about our, our language, name-calling, acting and sounding more and more like the world uh, than like the Lord Jesus in the way we speak and act? Where does the fruit begin? I, I suggest to you, uh, God's fruit begins with our desires. Even before our words and our actions, the desires within. That's what we ought to be especially cultivating. Lord, give me holy desires. Give me holy affections for the things of God. Because when the desires are there, inwardly, the fruit outwardly is going to follow. It will follow. But when we're simply doing outwardly, conforming outwardly because we want others to think that we're Christians but the desires are not there, that's the kind of fruit that is false. That's not the fruit that's going to last. There needs to be, again, within all of us, those holy desires to want to please Christ, to want to follow him, no matter how hard it is, no matter how easy it is, or it doesn't matter, hard or easy, uh, it calls us to follow him. And so no one is, and I leave this before just quickly talking about verse three, just as I leave verse 2. No one who is truly united to Jesus Christ, understand this, in all that I said, no one who is truly united to Jesus Christ will ever, ever be cut off and cast out from Christ. Okay? Even talking about fruit, all Christians will bear fruit, but no one who is united to Christ, no one who is truly in the vine will ever be cut off from that vine, from the Lord Jesus. In John 6, verses 37 through 39, Jesus could not have made this more clear when he said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. When did the Father give uh, these souls, these people, uh, to the Son in eternity? He gave them to the Son to die for, to redeem, even from all eternity. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. To come to Christ means to believe. So every, everyone whom the Father has chosen and has given to the Son to save, every one of them will come in faith to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, And him that cometh to me, that is those who come and believe in him, I will in no wise cast out, a double negative in, in the Greek language, that is, uh, it's, there's no stronger way to emphasize uh, a sentence with a negative than the double negative in Greek. It's basic, basically saying 
It's impossible that those who come to Christ, that he will ever cast them out. Verse 38, for I come down, or I came down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of, of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. So here's the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me from all eternity, hath given him to save, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus says, I will not lose even one branch that's united to me. Every branch that's truly united to Christ. Not simply those who make a profession to be in Christ, but those who are truly united to Christ. He will not lose one. He'll not cut off one of those branches. So that's, that's our hope. Uh, that's our confidence in Jesus Christ. And uh, again, these tests of fruitfulness um, are for our good, for our benefit, to be able to evaluate. Um, you know, how do you know what you know unless you're tested? You know, and, and God, these are tests that God gives to us to be able to evaluate, um, you know, what's going on in our life, starting with those, those desires and affections, then with our words, how we use our tongue, our actions, and, and our deeds. Verse 3, we'll stop here. Jesus says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So Jesus now turns to his disciples, absent Judas Iscariot. Judas is left and is uh, preparing to betray Christ. Jesus assures his disciples and us as well as his disciples that the Father's pruning process has already begun in their lives, demonstrating that they are truly united to Christ. Uh, ye are clean, ye are purged, ye are pruned through the word which I have spoken unto you. There's two senses in which I would suggest uh, that we can see this uh, pruning or cleaning process. Uh, one, the first sense, is uh, in which we as Christians are already clean, pruned, purged completely and totally, judicially, that is, in our standing before God because we are declared righteous once and for all through Christ's righteousness, justified. And that can never change. That is based upon Christ's righteousness alone. Not upon our righteousness, but upon His. Not upon our failures, not upon our weaknesses, but upon His righteousness. So, in a judicial sense, we are clean now and for all eternity. It is complete. Okay, that, that in that sense, but there's also a, a, another sense in which uh, we as Christ, Christians and as Christ's disciples are clean in a relative sense. Not a, uh, this is not an absolute, but a relative sense, uh, experientially, day by day, in our lives, we are being cleansed. Uh, we are being sanctified. We are seeing daily 
uh, old habits, the way that um, uh, we have done things to our own glory and for our own pleasure and out of our own selfishness and our own mere desires, those becoming weaker and weaker and weaker and our desire to please Christ and to follow Him becoming stronger and stronger and stronger in our lives. That's a, that's a daily cleansing. That's a daily purging uh, and cleaning in which we are, again, uh, daily seeing more of the old man dying in our lives and more of the new man being made alive in our lives through Christ. This process of uh, experientially daily uh, seeing this cleansing work of the Lord be, uh, in our lives began in our regeneration, uh, in that miraculous change when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and the Holy Spirit made us alive to Him, to God. Uh, and uh, then from that point on, again, this, this process, cleansing and renewal process throughout our whole Christian life. So that's uh, the, the cleansing that Jesus is speaking here. There's a sense in which it's complete already, but there's also a sense in which it's ongoing in our lives. The means that uh, is used, Jesus says, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. This means that the, the Father uses the word of God as a means uh, for our regeneration. In James 1.18 it says that we are born of God uh, through the word. And so it's the word that God uses in, in our life as well as uh, in our regeneration, but also it's the Word of God, it's Scripture that the Lord uses to continually cleanse us every day through the washing of His Word uh, by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 26 says, uh, in that same portion of God's Word where it's talking about uh, uh, that union with Christ pictured as a husband and a wife, uh, Christ being the husband and us being his bride. But in that same section, it says, uh, verses 25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. As Christ gave himself for his church, so the Lord calls us as husbands to be willing to give ourselves and our own lay down uh, our so-called rights, our, uh, put aside our selfishness in order to serve. And then verse 26 says that he, that is Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it, cleanse his bride with the washing of water by the word. So, in closing, just leave this with you. Can you see how, how important it is that we be students of God's Word? Not only that we read it, uh, that's like 
some food in front of us and we just uh, take a taste of it in reading it. So we don't want to just taste the word. We want to eat it. We want to digest it. Okay, that's, that's what we are to do with God's word. Uh, digesting it would be that beyond reading it, we meditate upon it. We think upon it. What is God saying to me? Praying over the word that we've read. Lord, what, what art thou saying unto me today? What am I to learn from this portion of thy word about who thou art and who I am and, and how I need thee and what promises thou dost make unto me in thy word and how I am called to be faithful to thee and then even to memorize it. To memorize God's word the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And we are to take up that sword uh, by way of using it, using God's Word. And uh, one of the best ways that we can use it and have it available to us is, is to memorize portions, especially that are helpful to us. Write them in conspicuous places in your house throughout your, your house to have little sticky notes that will remind you uh, in your office, uh, in your car, wherever, uh, just to, to be a continual reminder of those truths. That's how our minds are cleansed of, uh, of the filth, of the corruption that the world attaches uh, to us because we pick up that stuff, you know, throughout the day. But the Word of God is the means that He uses to cleanse us. Growth in Christ and sanctification then are through His Word and His Spirit. John 17, 17, Jesus said, and we'll get to this in a couple more chapters, Jesus was praying and He prayed for His disciples and He said, to the Father, sanctify them, and sanctify his disciples, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. Let's stand in prayer. Indeed, our Lord, sanctify us through thy truth. Cleanse us, cleanse our minds. Let us not just take a little nibble of thy word, a little taste of thy word, but Lord, may we devour thy word. May we crave it. May we hunger and thirst, Lord, to be fed by thee and thy spirit as thou dost make known to us who thou art and thy glory and thy power and might and the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us and the inheritance that is ours in Christ and the life that he gives unto us. Lord, let us enjoy to the fullest that life. Let us not be meager. Let us not, in enjoying that life, let us not act as though we are, we are paupers, we are, uh, that we are poor, that we are poverty-stricken spiritually when in fact... Uh, 
Uh, we are rich in Jesus Christ. Our inheritance is vast, and yet we do not avail ourselves of it. We have, as it were, in a checking account, uh, a vast sum uh, by way of inheritance, and we very seldom, it seems, go to withdraw from that inheritance that is ours because we are so consumed with this world, so consumed uh, with um, the things of this life uh, that we uh, either forget or ignore and neglect uh, to withdraw daily from that inheritance that is ours and to live in light of that inheritance. Forgive us, Lord, and to cleanse us through thy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.